Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. My guest today is Dr. Kelly Kapik. Uh, Kelly earned his PhD from King's College at University of London. He's a professor of theological studies at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, where he has taught for more than 20 years. He's an award-winning author or editor of more than 15 books, including his book, Embodied Hope, and his most recent book, Only Human, both of which won the Christianity Today Book of the Year Award in Theology. So super excited about this conversation. Uh, had a wonderful time talking to Kelly, so please welcome to the show, the one and only Dr. Kelly Kapik. Kelly, thanks so much for being on uh, Theology in Raw. I really, um, really enjoyed your talk at the last uh, Q Ideas Cultural Summit. Then I think shortly after, your publisher sent me your book, and I was like, oh, sweet. This is uh, such an absolutely needed topic. So um, anyway, thanks for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. This is fun. Yeah, we can dive into um, the book. It's called uh, You're Only Human, How Your Limits Reflect God's Design and Why That's Good News, um, which Mm. I... I'm so glad a theologian is tackling this because it's one of those things mm. that I feel like a lot of us intuitively are feeling that yeah, sure. when I look around, I see so much efficiency, right? I mean, the last just few decades, it's like we are, we are masters of efficiency and yet we're more overworked than ever, more stressed out, anxiety rates, depression through the roof. So I'm just... Mm. In the back of my mind, just a practical question: Like, is this working? Like, what we're trying to do to make our lives like less stressful, yeah. happier, and all these things? I'm sure, like, sure. Why is it not working? Anyway, that that's that's yeah. kind of where my mind goes. But why don't yeah, you yeah, yeah. begin with telling us what led you to write the book and maybe give us an yeah. elevator pitch of what what it's all about? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I I think we can feel it in our souls. Um, yeah. Let me start with your last question in terms of what what took me to it. There are some there are some personal and some pastoral. Uh, and, and actually some theological ones. The, the personal is just, you know, like many of your listeners, I'm sure can relate so often at the end of days, I have this nagging voice in my head that is accusing me saying, why didn't you do more? Mm. You know, why, you know, and it, and it brings with it, you know, these waves of guilt and shame. And so, and as a theologian, I'm not against repentance. Repentance is a gift, right? And and when I've been cruel, when I've been greedy and and unkind and hurtful, I want to I want God to convict me and I want to be liberated and repent of that. Uh but as a theologian, I just this thing is not shaken for years. And one of the questions is, well, do I should I feel mm. guilt over not doing more? Mm. Right? And if if I'm spending 10 hours a day playing video games or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there, there is this guilt unto life. Right. Um, but I think a lot of us can relate to that. It's like, when have you ever done enough? When have you done enough of your to do's? Right. And so that, that's, that's part of what's driven me, um, personally is trying to think through and, and, and even in that, like, how did I spend my day? which is a sign we have just been driven in our imaginations by this economic model, right? And that we're going to spend it. So there, there's that, that personal side. And the other personal thing is my wife in 2008, uh, got cancer and, uh, by God's grace. And this is a longer story, but after a year was declared cancer free, but since 2010, she's dealt with pretty serious chronic pain and fatigue. And so as two very, you know, driven people, all of a sudden, one thing after another, we just having to trim and trim and trim. Mm. And that brings up questions of identity and purpose. Mm -hmm. And what do you do? And 
So by God's provision, I ended up and with her encouragement, I wrote a book on pain and suffering called Mm -hmm. Embodied Hope. But it was only after doing that that I finally felt able to start reflecting on the good of being a creature. Hmm. Um, So that's it. And then the very short theological things driving the book is I really think um, Christians in the West and particularly evangelicals, the kind of the world I work in, um, I think we have a very underdeveloped doctrine of creation and an underdeveloped appreciation for the humanity of Jesus. So that's a, that's a lot, but those those are some of the theological and personal reasons driving the book. What, what are some, the, 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 that's interesting? Can you expand on that and and maybe give us some examples of um, what it looks like when people have an insufficient doctrine of creation and the humanity of Jesus? Like, what are some practical ways in which that plays out? Yeah. So you know, since I mentioned you know, and in, in evangelical worlds, I, I just think our view of creation is underdeveloped, underutilized, however you want to put it. And people say, what do you mean? We're t- we talk about creation all the time. <laughs> say, when we talk about creation historically in the last 150 years, it's all been about when did God create the <laughs> earth and how did he do it? Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not going to say there's nothing to those questions, but they are certainly theologically not first and foremost, but that has captured our imagination. So, so this is partly why we struggle to appreciate the goodness of our bodies. And how do we relate to the earth? Or even, um, I have a chapter on the importance of process. God, God actually, in the creation narrative, one thing you actually, no matter if you think the world is, I don't know, 10,000 years old or 10 billion years old, mm-hmm. either, either vision, what you do get from the narrative is the God who could have made everything in a millisecond actually takes his time. Which me and the the spirit hovering over the waters, these the, this tohu luvohu, this 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 chaotic water, and starting to bring about order. That means from the beginning, even before their sin or fall, God likes process. Hmm. He's very comfortable taking his time. Now that view of creation is important because when as Christians we get to a view of sanctification in the Christian life. If you don't have a high view of creation, then your only option as a Christian is every day you kind of feel like God's disappointed in you, like. Well, you screwed up today, but you got forgiveness. You're like, wait, is that the only option? Or is God very comfortable in process? He knows where you are. He knows where he wants to take you. And that's just part of him being the creator and you're a creature. So anyways, there's all kinds of things related to that. But I've thought about the the, one of the most brilliant titles of any book, I think, was um, Eugene Peterson's A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I've never actually I've never actually read it. But oh, I just it's like, a great book. <laughs> I, I bet it is because I get kind of like I've read, I've yeah. read you know several books by Peterson and and I yeah. get his you know kind of I, I can almost predict what 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 the book's gonna yeah yeah the title's so good you don't need to read yeah. the book yeah <laughs> I should probably read it I should probably read it there's there's several Peterson books I'm like oh, I can't believe I haven't read that one but um I yeah just that idea of in our and I I don't know what I'm sure we'll go here but in our pre-internet age or you know just just things just took longer they were more thoughtful we didn't rush things so much and and um and i you know i i most of my life has been in the internet age but i mean i i do remember back then you know and things were just i don't know just this the slow slower movingness of things did seem to i don't know produce i don't want to say better results because there i go back into the kind of production thing but just um I don't know, more thoughtfulness, more humanness. I don't know. I, yeah. I can't even put it in words really, but it just felt more just different. No, I, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's interesting. I think in some ways what we have to wrestle through here is our imaginations because our imaginations 
which at one point were kind of shaped by say horses, you know, <laughs> um, and an elderly neighbor, um, you know, th- these kind of things. Now they're shaped by a smartphone, a car, the cloud. One is so about efficiency, speed and expansion, mm-hmm. right? Whereas the other is just by necessity, there's process, there's slowness. Um, and so our, I do think there's a different, you know, we watch Westerns or whatever you see and you're like, oh, look at the person ride the horse. But even in most of those movies, if they're any good, they got to get off the horse. They got to rest the horse. But when now our imagination is shaped by the smartphone, you plug it in for 20 minutes, it should be ready to go for hours again. And that's kind of how we view life. Like even in Christian circles, much less non-Christian circles, like if you say you really need eight hours of sleep, it's like you're weak, right? Yeah. You know, the, yeah. the, and it, that's starting to change, but it's, you know, it's been a big thing. And so, you know, one audience for this book that's been huge is pastors. And I get a lot of notes and letters from people who they're just, they've been dying. Yeah. And yeah. Um, one of them, you know, recently said, I, you know, in college, I, uh, there was a small group of us and we said, you know, how can we just sleep on four hours a, a night? So we have 20 hours for Jesus, right? Yeah. Well, that sounds like great. And that'll sell a book. Um, You know, it's like, don't waste your life or something. But you got to think through what does it mean to be human? And what does God actually want? What does faithfulness look like? So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the pastoral burnout. I mean, COVID didn't help either. Do do you think think it is a production performance drivenness that my identity is found in how much I produce, how much I grow? I mean... As a church, but even I, I know a lot of churches that don't say they're church growth oriented, and yet, sure, when the church doubles in size, they're not like saying, "Ah, who cares?" They're excited, you know. It's, oh, we, we yeah. doubled, you know. It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we're not church growth, yeah, yeah. you know. But like we, yeah, yeah. we got like one thousand, one another thousand people this week. So, um, or Easter, you know, how many people attend on Easter? And, and yeah, sometimes these measurements can be just intuitively, you know, production kind of oriented. Would you say? Yeah. I, I don't. I'm oh yeah, for sure. Loud, yeah, sure. And and. The pastors in the congregation, I don't want to make anyone the bad person here. They, sure. None of them, like you said, none of them are going to say we hate evangelism or we don't want to grow or anything like that. And yet they're saying we're not making it the main thing. But I think the 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 test of this in my own soul and in others is how do you view prayer? Because even though we all know we should pray and most of us say, oh, I know I should pray more. The reality is we don't pray because we don't think it's doing anything. It's a waste of time. It is inefficient. And pastors of all, you know, they know, and you can sense this, like, is prayer, and this, I'm not trying to guilt trip any pastors or anyone else. I'm like, this is, this is life with the living God. And you, especially who are feeding sheep, you, you, you have to be with him, right? But those things are inefficient at pastoral ministry. It's funny when business people, and I do think this contributes to pastoral ministry, you'll get business people like, listen, I know the church is having trouble. I know you're struggling. Let me come in and advise you. And they'll come in and they'll organize them and, you know, say all this, which is great on paper. And then Tuesday morning, the pastor gets a call and there's a kid in the hospital who, who overdosed on drugs. And then, you know, Tuesday night, there's you know, he finds out this couple that's been in the church for 10 years is divorcing. And all of this blows up your calendar because it's inefficient. It's relational, right? Mm -hmm. But if you want growth, if you want productivity, relationships get downplayed. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've noticed in my own schedule. So this, I feel like we're off to what, 10 minutes now. And (laughs) this is going to be probably a pretty personal podcast for me because everything you're saying, I, I deeply 
wrestle with. In my most honest moments, I don't pray nearly as much as I should because if I'm honest, I'm like, well, I didn't pray yesterday. Got a lot done. Things seem fine. Two days before that, I prayed five minutes and same thing. You know, like I, there's, I, I just been, when I'm so focused on life in front of me or just the material realm, if you will, um, yeah. or, or production, I'm like, I'm producing mm. pretty well without right. prayer. And I, I mean, I, I want to throw up on my face just saying that because I'm like, what well, am I even a Christian? You know, but like, I'm just, that reality is just front and center with me. And, and, and as much as I, deeply value that kind of slow moving marinating in life and and there's high there's quality of the things that take time mm. you know uh, a, a meal that takes two hours to cook or four hours mm. to cook is is going to be a better meal you know um mm. taking time to produce something a book or you know is, is typically mm-hmm. going to be a higher higher quality and yet i just battle so much i don't know every time i turn around every month i'm like Okay, how did my schedule get so jam packed? It's like yeah. I'm looking at myself saying, this is, "Well, because of me, yeah. really, you know." Like, yeah. but like to your point, in when I jam pack my schedule, unexpected people become an interruption, and that is just so so wrong on so many levels. What, what's wrong with me? I, I this is no, I, I'm gonna I, owe I you really a, appreciate. I'm gonna owe you yeah, a, I mean, a I therapist really... bill after this podcast. But <laughs> I, I uh, you know, honestly, I, I appreciate you sharing that. We, you know. A lot of us can relate to that. And that's part of me. Part of what's driving the book is me working through this stuff myself, right? I'm not writing as an expert, but as a fellow fellow pilgrim and and some of the uncomfortable things I've seen in myself. And I, you know, I've been, I, I turned 50 this year and uh, I feel like I've just been in recent years learning how to pray, right? Learning how to, hmm. and listen, I, you and I both, because of things we do, life can be incredibly busy, right? And you were constantly, you have to say yes to things and no to things. And it's not bad to be busy and even stressed at times stress. And we can talk about stress if you want a little later. And I talk about that in the book. Stress is not a bad thing. Stress is a gift from God. Like when you hear the the roar of a lion, stress can move in your body. There can actually be an adrenaline move and you can, you can actually respond in super powerful ways. Um, the problem is what we've taken is the gift of stress the gift of even times of busyness, we've made them into a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And so what is a good gift is a terrible master. And, and what's happened is all of us, because of the, the imagery of efficiency and productivity, feel like every moment should be producing something. And that, th- so it's not, it's not bad. Work is a good thing. It's just when it becomes the main thing. And that sure. that is the metaphor of our lives now. So trying to rethink that. And what I'm interested in is kind of biblically, theologically, is that God's vision, right? What is, this takes us really fundamental, what is the flourishing life look like? Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to present some romantic view where we're just, you know, hanging out, drinking pina coladas all the time and, and never doing anything. It's not yeah. that. I'm just asking, what does it mean to be really human? Um, and to be more humane in an inhumane world. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. that there are times, there's, there's, there's necessary seasons for busyness or even and where my mind just went is like different um, socioeconomic um, yeah, privileges, sure. for lack of better terms. Like, yeah. you know, you and I are white collar intellectuals that, you know, might be able to take time to spend the morning contemplating the, the, the things of life and slow down. Other people are like, man, if I don't, if I don't work my three jobs, you know, I'm a single mom, whatever. And, and, and yeah, I, I don't get enough sleep because I'm just trying to survive, you know? Um, 
how should we think through that? Just different. Um, I don't know. Yeah. The, the, you want my real answer? Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> it's, it's such a good question. And I think we need to be super aware of it. In my limited experience, the, pe the people I know who are Christians, who are in some of those pretty dire socioeconomic settings, both in America and elsewhere, mm -hmm. they're wondering why I'm asking that. Because they actually spend way more time in prayer and stuff. Oh, wow. It's just interesting oh, because, interesting. because huh. fundamental, what the, the thesis of the book is that we confuse finitude and sin and finitude is just the fancy word for limits in space, time, knowledge, and power, right? Or the Christian word for it is creature. And we feel guilty for being creatures, right? And, and in a different kind of way to circle around, if, if I'm talking to someone and I say, and you overhear it. And I say, yeah, I met Preston. Great guy. But man, he's really dependent on a lot of other people. Is that ever a positive in our culture, <laughs> including Christian culture? Like yeah. that is such a negative. Yeah. But dependence is fundamental to being a creature and a Christian discipleship. We were made. There's a whole chapter on the on humility. And I think we we've misunderstood humility because we built it on sin rather than creatureliness. Even before sin or the fall, we were made to be humble. And humility is about being dependent on God, dependent on our neighbor, dependent on creation. Mm -hmm. That's the good of creation. That's not a bad thing. That's yeah. not a response to sin. So this becomes really important because dependence is this positive. And people often, believers who don't have a lot of socioeconomic resources, often cultivate a dependence on God a dependence on others and the earth. And so it may not, it doesn't have to look like this long, quiet time. But there is this fostered dependency and because they often can't be anyways, productivity is not the only thing for them. Yeah. I feel like my wife, a little shout out to my wife. She, she models a good balance. She's incredibly mm. productive. Um, she's one of those people that doesn't need near as much sleep as like I do. Like she just wakes up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're just I, differences among. Yeah. People. There's yeah. I, I actually, uh, I met another buddy of mine, a new friend of mine. Um, he's a pastor and he, he says, uh, yeah, I think four or five hours of sleep or something, but not, it's not because of why most pastors might limit right. themselves to four or five. He just, and he even right. he did a lot of research and said, there are some people with almost like a, it's almost like a genetic disorder or something, you know, that, yeah, 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 yeah. um, so, but my, so my wife, well, I think my wife might have that actually, cause she, she can function on so little and she doesn't force herself to get little. It just happens, but she's also, she has a rhythm of dependence on God while she's being productive in a way that I'm like, oh, that's a great combination um because yeah some people are yeah they're dependent upon god but they might also so, yeah, some I mean, people most, might, yeah. might be a streak of laziness where it's like you know what today i'm just not gonna worry i'm gonna meditate on the a mountainside all day which sounds great and maybe it is i don't yeah. know but um yeah and that's and i'm not you know th this idea of being a creature is not about not working yeah and it's exactly. not a utopian vision it's what does it mean to be human with rhythms of rest and work and even like you were asking earlier in different times when when you when your imagination is informed say by the seasons of crops listen those guys there are times when farmers historically and even to this day i mean you put in a lot of hours you might be putting in 15 hour days or yeah. whatever it is you just you're going all the time you've got to do that and you can do that for a season the problem is we now try and make it a lifestyle. Right. Um, right. And it, it's fascinating, you know, maybe to change it a little bit. So there's this, I don't know if you've read this book, um, Oliver Berkman, his, he writes these um, 
he's kind of a, he's written a lot in time management. Okay. Um, and best-selling books. And his most recent book is called 4,000 Weeks. And that's the average lifespan of someone in the Western world, 4,000 weeks. And he wrote this while he was researching and writing it while, while COVID was happening. And it's fascinating. And I read it. It came out right after I turned in my, my manuscript. But it was so great because here's this guy, best-selling book on time management. And he has this aha experience writing this book. And he realizes, oh, my word, all of us in time management? we're trying to deny our mortality. Oh, wow. That's the whole point of time management. And from what he's very thoughtful, he's clearly reads, you know, Augustine and other Christian authors, but I don't know if he's a person of faith, but it's super interesting. Yeah. Right. And he actually ends up just saying there is an irrationality to what we're all doing here. Right. Yeah. And so I, I'm a college professor and I've been talking about this stuff for a while. And so I, I like you, I love to ask people questions and I want to learn from him and a couple of years ago, one of my students, she came, said, let's have lunch. So we had lunch and she, we sit down and she, she takes this piece of paper and slides it across to me and it's color coded seven day, every hour is on that page, color coded every hour. And she says, on this is everything you and other people, you know, professors, pastors, parents, you guys all say I should do. Right. <laughs> so it's like, you say you should have eight hours of sleep. That matters. Right. And she, she blocks it off. You say, I should read my Bible a little bit and I should pray. It blocks it off. You say I should have three meals a day and not just shove it in my mouth, but actually talk to people. You say I should go to class 18 hours a day, every hour in class, do this much out. You see where it's going, right? Oh, I And know. I should go yeah. to, and, and here's the, you know, we laugh about it and it's, it's literally, literally impossible for her to do everything that she's quote unquote supposed to do. Well, I think most of us could do that in our lives. If you actually take the time and go, what are all the things I should do? I should do exercise. I should be investing in my church and I should do this for work. And you go down the list and that's part of how I start the book is I realized that it's impossible. Hmm. Like at best, I'm just getting through, right? I constantly feel like I'm letting people down. Hmm. But part of it is this unrealistic view of what it means to be human and how much we should get done. And so part of my frustration is as a church, our answer to this dilemma has been the same as non-Christians. It's time management. We give people time management theories. Hmm. And I want to reintroduce us to what it means to be human, right? So so trying to come to terms with your limits without apologizing. So I was a college professor for a number of years. I, 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 didn't, I didn't think about this until you brought it up, but that, that was a common complaint among students is, is exactly that. And students can be oh, it's so, so unrealistic as faculty. Yeah. Well, so what I'm just, I, I know yeah. that's more of an illustration, but I'm curious. That's a great concrete thing to think through. Like many people have various pressures in life that if they did everything that they're supposed to do, just quant, just quantity wise, the numbers don't match up. I mean, if, right. you know, every, yeah. if every professor was a moderate to somewhat difficult professor yeah, and you're taking your even 12, let alone 15 yeah. credit hours. Yeah. And doing your work study and having meals and doing your spiritual formation stuff and going to chapel and eight right. hours of sleep. like it just the numbers don't match up. So do you think no, they don't. Do you think schools should we should say it's a seven year program instead of four or something with the same amount oh, of credit? I mean, like, what's it's the, worse than this, Preston. It's worse. So I actually I think we as not just in Christian circles at large, we are catechizing way before college. Okay. So the average high school kid there, and I didn't plan on this research. It just ended up taking me there. Here's an, and a lot of your listeners can tell you if this is true or not. And this is, this is middle and upper middle class public and private school. 
It is a little different when it's not that. But this is happening all over the country and has now for decades. The average day starts, people leave, the kids leave in high school, 7.30 in the morning. They're in class till about 3.30. Then they go and change and go do an extracurricular. It could be robotics, it could be a sport, it could be theater, whatever. They do that till about 6, 6.30. They rush home, take a shower, slam down some food, and then normally do some other extracurricular activity and study until about 11, 1130 at night every day. And I'm not naive. I know that there's, they're watching YouTube videos and TikTok yeah. in there and all that, but that is, that's what's happening every day. So they're being catechized by this and then college continues this. And, and so it's interesting because when I start to talk about this, people often like, yeah, but what about the TikToks or what about Netflix binging? And I used to want to blame that stuff too. But actually now, rather than yeah. blaming those things, I'm more interested in why do, not just the kids, why do you and I sure. want to binge yeah. on Netflix yeah, and do all yeah. that? And I think it's because it's the only way to escape the endless onslaught of to-dos, which is why we can watch Netflix for three or four hours, but think about how you feel as soon as it's done, mm -hmm. you feel guilty. I just wasted time. So, but it's, it's the escape, right? We're, we don't want to have any moments where we're not distracted because we know we should be doing something. So the phone, rather than being the thing to blame, I think is just kind of an accepted drug to help us in this situation. It's an escape so from the rat race that, so, so there's a, yes. there's a cause and effect yes. here. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I, and I do think, say it's a college, they, say it's a work and we need to reimagine what faithfulness looks like. And, you know, people bring me in to speak and stuff and they, they love what I'm saying about finitude and yes, I don't want to feel guilty, but then it almost always reaches a point where they're like, yes, you're a hundred percent right. Now, how do I do everything I need to do? And that, mm -hmm. and no, the painful no. answer yeah, is with a student, for example, maybe the answer is you get some bees and we don't want to hear that. Right. <laughs> but maybe, maybe the answer is you need to, you can't work and go to school. Maybe the answer is but we don't want to make choices yeah. and the lack of making choices is part of what's undermining our humanity. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this, there, I'm not going to say it's all this, but as you probably know, there's a massive mental health crisis happening all over, but especially on young people. And part of it is they do this for a while and then they're like, I'm done. I'm out. Yeah. This is not working. Right. So this and, is huge. And whatever the cause and effect, I mean, what the latest statistics are, you know, they might spend six to seven hours a day on, on, on screens. Now there are people don't understand teenagers. I have four teenagers and they're, yeah, they're able to, to well, <laughs> they think they're multitasking, but as, yeah. um, who's, um, Andrew Huberman or, um, who's the deep work guy, um, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Powell Newport, you know, says multi. The yeah. brain doesn't actually multitask. No, like, yeah, it just, just moves between tasks. <laughs> it moves and it between. Tends to be yeah, yeah. So yes, that's um, what happens. But yeah, so you add. I mean, again, pre-internet. Well, we saw TV and stuff. So I mean, we're watching. I don't know what. What's the solution? Yeah, so I'm curious. What is the solution? Because you're describing such systemic problems that I don't know if we're gonna revamp you know, the four-year college degree anytime soon yeah, yeah, yeah. or tell professors to sign less or even when I was a professor, I just said this to my daughter the other day. She, she was, um, first year in college and she's writing a paper. It's like a five page research paper on, I think the Sherpas or something. And I said, and she, she, you know, I'm like, okay, here's how you do research and stuff. But I said, I told her, I said, you know, make sure you don't just 
grab stuff really quickly and throw together and like actually right. actually like marinate in, in in the sources like 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 mm-hmm. learn like like make learning the topic the goal not just producing a paper but then that takes a lot longer than just cranking out a paper that you can get a b minus on um but again our are our system set up both in the church and in the academy to help students foster taking research slow and, and and do a few drafts you know get some feedback maybe you know meet with your professor say hey would you mind reading this ahead of time he's not gonna have time to do that you know but like that would be ideal right i mean that would be actually like people would be truly learning rather than just cranking out stuff to get through a course yeah we i mean often at covenant now where i teach um if you're gonna if you are going to assign a research paper normally the you have to do it in a way that the the student will have opportunity to receive feedback from you and revise it good because all the data is if you only turn it in at the end yeah it doesn't, they don't get better and it's in, you know, you undermine this very process you're talking about. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not, again, I'm not naive on this, but I, I think the fact that we, I am, I am interested in helping us reclaim our humanity. Students deal with so much guilt and shame. Um, and most of us do in our lives, right? So it's, it's kind of like, uh, just to use to, to change examples because I, I, I just have dealt with this recently where a young couple married super, they're doing great. They're, you know, excelling at work and they have a baby. They're very happy about having a baby, but then there's a shocker that's super <laughs> disillusioning because they all of a sudden deal with deep sense of shame because they're not getting very much done anymore. <laughs> they're not getting very much sleep They're Everything's becoming inefficient uh, it, it just slows way down. And if you don't have a theology that says, no, it's okay. This season is different. You can't just have everything that you had plus, right? right? right. At some point, something has to be taken away. That's what it looks like. And then when you're an empty nester, that looks different too, right? Anyway, so this, this, I guess even with the creation narrative, part of what's fascinating to me is since God could have made it in a second and doesn't, it's one of those signs for God, his high, he loves efficiency and productivity. They're just not his highest values. Mm-hmm. Love it. Yeah. Love is. And, and I think the big test case for us is how do relationships fit in to our lives? Mm-hmm. How do we think about love? And love tends to require margin. And again, this is not about being wealthy and having margin. Uh, um, I find it, I find it super interesting. So many middle and upper middle-class folks, we just think we have no time. But when you are when you are financially struggling, it's interesting. It's totally normal to help someone jump their battery, get gas for a car, because in your neighborhood, everybody's just getting by. Statistically, some of the most generous people are people on the lower income level because giving is just part of life. But those of us, when you get more prosperous, the illusion of control and self-containment grows. And so anything is a problem that distracts you from your goals. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But actually, if you don't have a lot materially, you're pretty used to helping others and getting help from others. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. And it, it, yeah, it so helps when you when you do go to other cultures. And I don't, you know, I think other, other cultures definitely struggle with similar things, um, if not the same things. But then other ones, my, my favorite... Probably my favorite culture is po- Polynesian cultures. I went um, 
uh, to Samoa a couple times during college on wow. like, you know, like a extended kind been, of a short term but longer short term yep. trip. I've been to um, Tahiti and, and other places and and just um, the cool thing about Polynesian cultures is it's so close. The, most of them are so close to the equator that you have uh, you don't have a lot of shift in daylight. Like uh, it's mm. kind of sun, sun up at six a.m., sundown at six p.m. with mm. minimal variation, and that really yeah. controls um, the the work kind of the the work day yeah. like people once the sun comes up people are kind of busy going out doing stuff once it goes down they're ha- having meals or you know some you know, tahiti they're out drinking in the lagoon you know partying or whatever yeah, yeah. but i mean yeah, but yeah, I yeah. Don't know, like, it, it just created this like really honest creational rhythm of yes the day that had it built in kind of like things are shutting down and people were kind of chilling hanging out and i just i love love I remember the first time I was in Samoa, I, w- I came back and I was like, I think every American needs to spend a summer in Samoa. Like just the things are just slower moving. And I don't know, people just seem so much happier. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, somebody on the side of the road broken down and like you would have no, everybody would stop and like, hey, can, yeah. you know, can I help you out? You wouldn't just, think about it. Yeah. yeah. So one, no, I love that you mentioned that because I'd like to take a second on it because Another area of research I didn't plan on was I ended up doing all this research and, and thinking through the invention of the clocks, uh, you know, and we, you have ancient clocks and sundials and all of that. So, and, and I won't, I won't bore people with it right now, but it's, it's actually super interesting because what's happened now, it's, it, it is about our relationship to time and time now in our minds is about productivity. And so scholars in this field make a distinction. This is going to get to your your illustration, they talk about the difference between contextual and non-contextual views of time. And most of us in the Western world now actually have non-contextual views of time because you and I, if it's 11 o'clock at night, we can go in and this is not just about clocks. This is about electricity and all this kind of stuff. So at 11 o'clock at night, we go into the kitchen, we turn on the light, we open our laptop, right? It's, and you and I have an hour of work to do and we can do it. Mm-hmm contextual time, which is how most people in the history of the world and a lot of the world to this day lives is it's in light of the context. So when the sun is up, it's one thing. When the sun is down, it's another thing. When your, your body, you know, we deny our body chemistry or blood sugar levels. Is there a baby crying in the background? And that that's because we're trying to pretend it's all the same contextual time for recognizes. No, someone's sick. This is a different time there. Yeah. there so the fact that we even sunrise and sunset have lost any significance for us is really interesting. And so I, you know, even just a, a, a funny example for me is, you know, a lot of your listeners have heard you, you hear these examples of saints through the ages and are like, they got up at five, four thirty in the morning to pray or three in the morning. And that's great. Sometimes it was really amazing, but sometimes it was because they went to bed at eight. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it was dark. It was, and there were times when actually we have this history where They'd go to bed for about four hours and wake up for an hour or two and then sleep for a little bit. Just different patterns, right? Yeah, yeah. But if you don't know any of that and you just take our lifestyle, we're weakened with electricity. We work until 1130 at night or whatever. And then you're like, well, I should get up at four to pray. You're not understanding this is a different world.
This episode is sponsored by Biola University's Talbot School of Theology. Okay, so I get asked a lot about which seminaries do I recommend, and my response is always the same. It's, well, it kind of depends on what you're looking for. But no matter what, Talbot is always one of my top recommended schools, partly because I feel like I know like half the professors there, so I can vouch for you know who they are and and. and I know their character. I know what you're going to get into. But I've also spoken on campus, which had amazing time on the campus there. I've had several of the profs on the podcast. Here's what I love most about Talbot. They do a fantastic job combining rigorous scholarship that's saturated with a deep love for the church. And it's all integrated with a pervasive emphasis on spiritual formation in the lives and hearts of the students. The professors are super down to earth. They're involved in their churches. Many of them are pastors at their church. And they also write high powered academic books. So if you're looking to deepen your understanding of scripture um, or just be more equipped to serve your family, your church, the world around you, Talbot offers many different courses and degree programs. And they also have done a really fantastic job with their online program where you can attend live online or watch pre-recorded courses by some amazing professors. So if you've been thinking about going to seminary, check out biola.edu forward slash Talbot. That's T-A-L-B-O-T. Biola.edu forward slash Talbot to get more information. I went through, because I'm not um, not a morning person at all. My my ideal, you know, maybe wake up at 6, 6.30. Today was 6.30, it, but it's always very slow moving and... Um, mm. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I, I can't really fall. I mean, it's hard for me to fall, even if I'm tired to fall asleep. Kind of before, for sure, before ten, if not eleven, eleven thirty. So, yeah, I, I'm not a morning person at all. But I've, I've, I've lit. I used to. I don't do it anymore. I, I, but I used to live with all this. Yeah, guilt for not getting up super early. And super early. Yeah, right. It's something yeah. about you know Jesus did it. Can't you? You know, he, he rose from the dead. You can't even get out of bed. Like. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, oh that's no, a, I think it was a green, man. That. You're just dating yourself right there. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Um luckily I don't struggle with guilt. Going back to my therapist, my therapy session here. I I I used to feel guilty for saying no, for not doing this, for not living this kind of Christian life, that kind of Christian life. And and I really don't. I genuinely don't struggle with that yeah. anymore. I've Good. just I, I've I've begun I've come to celebrate the diversity of God, God's people, how they're wired, the gifts that they have, the gifts they don't have, the callings they have. You know, I'd feel guilty for like, you know, how come you didn't buy a one-way ticket to an unreached people group, you know, like, right. what, you don't think that's a greater need than staying in America or something? And I've lived with right, that for right. years, you know, or, mm. or how come we're not doing, how come we're not doing more evangelism or doing this, doing that? And I'm like, you know, I have a kind of a lane and a calling I feel like I'm in and I feel like I'm, you know, doing that as good as I can or, you know, as faithfully as I can and, and not be so like, cause if you just start succumbing to that guilt, it's just, you can be crippling. And that's cause I've experienced that before. Just feeling like you're around, we're around all these other people who are doing so many different things. Well, I need to do all that. I need to get up at four. You know, one of my buddies yeah. is like my wife. He, he, um, yeah. 4 AM. He, he springs out of bed. He's like, yeah, you just gotta, you just gotta kind of just do it for a week, wake up and, and your body will adjust whatever. I tried it. And I was like, <laughs> throwing up in the afternoon. I was so tired and I just, yeah. like, I'm just not wired that yeah. way, dude. <laughs> I, yeah, I, and well, and I think honestly, part of what also feeds this maybe in a surprising way is our overly individualistic framework of viewing the Christian life and just life itself. So take, for example, Matthew 25, I think is a good example. So in Matthew 25, um, it includes the whole sheep and the goat goats episode, yeah. right? And Jesus says he's very, it's in red letters. We can't ignore it. Right. <laughs> and, uh, 
he, you know, sheep go to heaven, goats go to hell. It's this very sobering thing. And when you read it, it actually, everyone wants to bring in other things. But when you actually just read the text, the thing that, as you know, the thing that separates the sheep and the goats is how did you treat the least of these? Did you clothe the naked? Did you feed the hungry? Did you visit the prisoners? Those kind of things. And I think I find it fascinating because right now, part of our polarization is even reflected in how we deal with a passage like that, where when some people read that, they rightly feel convicted and feel like, I'm not doing any of those things. I really need to do them. And then others read it and go like, nah, those, that social gospel stuff. That's, you know, <laughs> I don't care if it's red. It's not my Bible. So kind of ignore <laughs> it. And you know, I had a friend of mine who's in ministry, who's super faithful and you know, all of this, but he called me single guy, very faithful. And he just said, Kelly, I can't shake Matthew 25 because I don't know if I'm a goat. I don't visit prisoners. I don't. And he's like, I don't have very much money. Maybe I can get a few more hours in the week to visit, you know, to work at the food shelter or whatever. So what, what do you do? Right. Yeah. And we, and I think honestly, we hear, we hear something like that. We think, oh, he just has an overly tender conscience and he just needs to be. And I think, well, or he's, t I mean, that may be true, but also maybe he's just taking Jesus more seriously mm. than us. Mm. So anyways, without taking too long, I would just say the, the way I answered Matt, the way I answered this guy is the way I think through this is, you know, when I think about my last week, you know, I was in Nepal, um, evangelizing and I was praying with children in the hospital who were on the verge of death. And I was helping recovering sex um, traffic folks. And I was uh, helping fight racial injustice. And you're like, how did you do that last week? It's because I'm part of the body of Christ. And by the spirit, I'm not just united to Christ, but I'm united to all these other people who are doing those things. Okay, interesting. Yeah. And so the argument I would make is, which is when you say I don't feel guilty, here's, I think, the theological reason you shouldn't feel guilty is because it takes the entire church to be the one body of Christ. It can't be that Matthew 25 is irrelevant. It has to be, we got to do those things. But for Jesus to say, these are really important, doesn't mean that each individual must personally do them, hmm. but we, as the people of God, absolutely must do them. Does it take some does that level? Make any sense? Yeah. Does it take some level of um, connection to people doing those things? I'm thinking of like, uh, you mentioned Nepal. We, I've, I've been to Nepal a few times and have churches there that we've been involved with and pastors and stuff or even organizations in Africa and that are literally doing exactly those things. And if some, whether it's, I mean, financial support or some kind of camaraderie prayer, I mean, is, is there, does there need to be some kind of tangible connection or is it simply by existing as a Christian that you're part of the global church? You know what I mean? Um, I mean, I, yeah, I would, I would want to, well, actually I, I, I just want to say it's the, my connection by the spirit. Okay right? The Holy Spirit. And, and that when we, I'm thankful that union with Christ is being rediscovered by people that we're united to Christ. That is our security. But part of our union with Christ is union to his people. Mm -hmm. So I do think the more you appreciate that, it should sure. also then foster those connections so that when the missionaries or whatever say, I'm sorry to ask for money, you're like, no, no, no. we as a church are so thankful in this small way, we get to participate in what you're doing tangibly. <laughs> um, but I, I don't even want to, I don't even want to say that you have to know about it. I mean, there are things that God is super passionate about, passionate about that he thinks are really important that I don't even know about. 
Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that's yeah, okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't need to know about them. The fact that I don't know about them doesn't mean that they're not important to God. Yeah, totally. And that in some kind of mystical way by the spirit, I still benefit as part of the body of Christ. So there is something to that larger connection. I think that's worth exploring. What, what are some, um, Kelly, some practical ways in your own life that you integrate all this stuff that you've been thinking through and learning, learning about? Are there any like major, since writing this book or in, in the process of writing it, are there changes you, you've made, like concrete changes that you can talk about? Or Yeah, no, that, I mean, it's, that would be a long answer, but it's a, it's a great question. So I'll just give you a few things. Um, because it is me kind of working through these things, both in the, in the process and I've, I've written and edited a lot, but this book I've probably been wrestling with for 20 years, to be honest. So, and I don't just say that that's not, that's not hyperbolic, but, um, yeah, so I'll give you, I'll give you one concrete example. I think the, the life, uh, the humane life that I'm talking about, a way to cultivate this is by learning to express lament and gratitude, hmm. lament and gratitude. Cause lament, part of the reason why we lament like the Psalms is we're frustrated. We're like, God, where were you? Why is this happening? But that surprisingly is an expression of your creatureliness. You're not in control. You're looking to the creator who is. And the, the flip side of that coin is gratitude, right? That to recognize God is working all over the place. The question is, do we recognize it? Do we acknowledge it? And so I, I do work with the Templeton foundation, uh, with various groups. And one of them, um, guy named Robert Emmons, who recently uh, retired from UC Davis, but he's part of a, he's a Christian psychologist and was part of the positive psych movement, which is good. And, and potentially there's some challenges there, but he helped lead all these gratitude studies. And there's all kinds of fascinating work on this, but if you have someone just in, and so here's a practical thing. If you have someone just write a gratitude journal every day for a month, and by that, I mean, just take five minutes and write down five things that you're grateful for your day. And that could be, that could be a crunchy apple. Someone at the grocery store said something nice to you, whatever it was you can find. And as a theologian, this stuff makes me nervous, but it's still fascinating. You can find if people do that for a month, there's physiological changes that happen. Hmm. They actually tend to sleep a little bit better. Um, heart rate goes down. There's all these kind of things you can measure. So, well, that that's part of how God made us. So anyways, hmm. one practice is to cultivate both lament and gratitude. It's a, it's a way of doing that. And then rest. I ended up actually, because I do wrestle with sleep, there is a, a section on a theology of sleep and trying to think through sleep. Uh, God, the reason we can sleep is God, God never, God doesn't. And I, it's kind of like when you're out in battle, you can't fall asleep because someone will shoot you. And part of the Christian promise is you can sleep because we have someone who's watching out for us even when we don't sleep. And so anyways, there's, there's a lot to be said on that, but there are, the last chapter has a bunch of practices of trying okay. to be really practical about this stuff. Well, what about uh, Sabbath? What's that? Uh, do you have like a yeah. specific strict Sabbath or uh, informal Sabbath or Sabbath rhythms? Yeah. I'm glad you, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. That's, that is kind of where the book ends. And okay. it's funny. I'm, I grew up Catholic and then, uh, you know, um, was in a, in a Baptist church for a while cause I hadn't been in church and, and now I'm Presbyterian. It's a longer story than that. But all that to say, in certain Presbyterian circles, you talk about Sabbath and everyone wants to fight, right? <laughs> what can you do? What can you not do? And and if you grew up in some of that, you hear the word Sabbath, people just worry about legalism. Hmm. But when I'm in, in, in circles where people haven't experienced that, and I just say, listen, read your Bible. What if, what if God actually made you to work 
for seven, six days, and then actually have a day off a day where you sleep, you get up, you worship with God's people, you feast with God's people, you gather, you enjoy God's creation. You do not do your normal work. What is it? And they're like, nah, that's that, that can't be. And, and here's the sign is students, students feel guilty in college if they don't study on Sunday. Yeah. And I'm talking about Christian students. And so, um, and again, I am not interested in being legalistic, but that is this model of like, you need to be using all your time productively. And I think it's hurting us. We desperately need rest. And if, if you never shut off, the consequences are pretty huge. And, and Sabbath, I haven't done a lot of thinking about it, not even for theological reasons, maybe for practical reasons. My wife and I have been married 21 plus years. We've always had, uh, um, really, I mean, more than a Sabbath, like the weekend, typically we Mm, don't, whatever we do Monday through Friday, and, but we may work, you know, really long hours and, and between my, yeah, sure. you know, it might travel a lot. So I'm, you know, literally I just got home a couple of days ago from a, gosh, it was a, it was a seven day trip in four states speaking, mm. I don't know, 12 times or something. So it's like, well, was that a work week or a work month crammed into seven days? You know, So the schedule is just kind of weird to have us, like, I'm not living in an, in an agrarian context where it's just like the, <laughs> where it was just so set, but to have you know, typically the weekends where we don't, whatever we're doing Monday through Friday, we're not typically not doing on the weekend. But for yep. me, because like, like you, you know, my job is to sit down in a chair and stare yeah. at a computer or think or write, you know, for me, Sabbath is like going on a long run, uh, working out, um, chopping yeah. wood or doing something physical, you know, yeah. so I might be working, yeah. you know, I'm in air quotes here, you know, physically, exhausting myself on a Sunday. But to me, that is actually rest for me because unlike my agrarian brothers and sisters, my, my work week is the opposite, you know, <laughs> where they might, they might spend Sunday reading. I'm like, I should probably not read on Sunday because I've been literally reading all week, you know, but yeah, I think that is a difference. I think that, you know, you and I, if you own a landscape business or you, you, you do that kind of thing, the odds are you, you probably shouldn't be doing that in your yard on Sunday and it's not enjoyable. It's not, but for you and I working in our yard, like trimming bushes, hanging outside, just enjoying God's creation, going for walks and runs. That is just fantastic. Yeah. You know, I don't know if, if your life is an ultra marathon or something, <laughs> and that's how you make your income. Maybe Sunday is a day you don't run, but for a lot of us, Sunday's a great day to go for a run. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so it, that, again, I'm like so not interested in any kind of legalism here. I'm just interested in pointing us to a very basic idea of how the creator made his creation in us. And it's okay to rest. We need to uh, not apologize. And central to that rest is not just rest from work, but resting in God, which okay. is why worship, corporate worship becomes important to that. It's not just labor, not labor, but yeah, there are rhythms even for our days though. And then the Sabbath is this reset. A Sabbath is to say, the Lord's day is to say, listen, amazing. I'm not the creator and sustainer. The world continues even when I'm not working. And I do think more and more in our culture, this is the way Christians need to be countercultural, not in a legalistic way, but to remind ourselves and others, things don't fall apart if I'm not working 24 seven and if they do fall apart, then something's wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's not a good thing. So I'm curious. I, this might open up a huge can 
we, we might not, mm. not have uh, time to, to explore it all. But I'm curious, as we look, we kind of talked about the, the, the challenges over the last several decades mm. with having a better rhythm of flourishing in God's creation. What does the future look like? Because things aren't slowing down at all. And I, I just, you know, now, now I've been, you know, keep kind of tapping into some of these questions about, you know, AI. Just there's some advancements going on there almost behind the scenes and it's starting to hit hit the hit hit society it's like this the, this is possible like internet level changes that, that could be happening and then transhumanism is something mm. i all i barely even know what that yeah. even means but like yeah where as you look ahead what are some things christians should maybe anticipate so that we can be maybe more prepared to think theologically ahead of time rather than just reacting once we're already addicted to the latest thing that might come out yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And as I'm sure you would say this yourself, it's always the challenge that that technological advances tend to go quicker than our ethical reflections, right? So without going down all those rabbit trails, I, I'm personally interested. I'm I'm actually toying with the idea of this book, and your listeners can tell you if you should tell me if it's worth it. But I'm I'm interested in maybe writing a book called Go Therefore and Make Humans. Because when you ask, what do I think about the future? I think Christian discipleship in the future is about helping people reconnect with what it means to be truly human, which is surprisingly becoming more and more difficult. And all the technological things you just mentioned are going to make it worse, not better in terms of our humanity. Hmm. And so, and people are like, I don't, I, no, 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 it's discipleship. It's not human. Well, no, the creator is the redeemer. They're not different gods. And the goal of the Christian life is not to make you superhuman. It's just to make you truly human. Hmm. That's all we're doing. And to be truly human is to be in communion with God, neighbor, and the earth. That's what we're made for. That's where God's taken us. That's a beautiful, glorious thing. It's not something else. And that vision is getting more and more difficult. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I do think in the ancient church, in the second century, part of what was happening is they were presenting a vision of being human. Women were dehumanized. Children are dehumanized. All these kind of women. And the church said, no, you have dignity. This is what it looks like to live with God, to be treated as your neighbor and all that kind of. So anyways, in light of all those things, I think the church, for me, one of the greatest apologetics, apologetic moves we can make in the future is actually showing people what being truly human looks like. When, and it looks like love. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Do, have you, have you looked into some of the challenges to that? Like again, with transhumanism, AI, or what are some things that some really big picture things that are happening that we should be aware of? Or, or is that not, would you say that's not really your... Yeah. I mean, um, I, I could say some things, but I don't think I'm the most qualified. You okay. could get someone else to talk about those specifics that I think would, would be able to speak into them more. But I would, I would say that generally it is fascinating that for every technological advance, most of them that we say are going to help us get more done, be more predict productive and all this kind of thing, whether it's a vacuum whether it's a washing machine, we know experientially and historically, all of those advances, all that happens is our expectations change. So that what cleanliness used to look like before the vacuum cleaner, now all that happened is now we expect more cleanliness, not less. This is why, whether it's a smartphone, all these efficiencies. So everything at first that it does save, quote unquote, save you time, ends up making a greater demand upon you. Hmm. And so all of the things that get promised in whatever, whether it's forms of transhumanism, this or that, 
as Christians, we just need to ask in what way does this help humanity and what ways does it dehumanize us? And, and again, technology is a great gift, right? I'm not again, you know, heart transplants are amazing. It's just, we just have to think through these things and be careful about them. Um, but for my particular purposes, a lot the transhumanism, I will say this, the transhumanism and a lot of that other stuff, it is the promise of making you better than human. Hmm. And the whole point of finitude is you're a creature. You're never not going to be a creature and being a creature is a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. The incarnation is about the eternal son of God becoming a creature unapologetically. Mm. And that's not sinful. So at, at its, at its root, the whole transhumanism push or movement or whatever we want to call it is not satisfied with creaturely limitations. It's trying to expand. No, no, no. That's the whole like goal the is very to overcome root. them. So it really yeah. is a dehumanization. Yeah. And maybe that's too, maybe that's too strong. I, I would say it's trying to enhance humanity maybe, but yeah, it's a, it's a superhuman. Mm. That's the goal, right? It's the bionic man, right. Or, right. you know, to age ourselves, but it is the goal of making us stronger, faster, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and at what point are we, we're not who we are. And, you know, we don't have time to get into this, but part of the, part of the book is exploring the, we talk about the universal and what does it mean to be human, but we need to talk about the particular too. Right. And so in the book, one, one of the things I explore is I actually think it's very, if, if I say, Hey Preston, do you think God loves us? We all say, yes. Does God love you? you? Say yes. But then when you ask, and this is related to this conversation, when you ask, do you think God likes you? Yeah. <laughs> that feels very different. And the reason that relates is it's kind of like, I deal with this with students all the time. If I ask them, when they're dealing with stuff and they're in my office, I say, you think your parents love you? They always say yes. But if I say, do you think your parents like you? It's amazing how often tears come. Oh, wow. And I think that's exactly what we do with God. That is related to the transhumanism conversation. Like how comfortable is God with you? And God's whole vision for you is not that God hates you. He hates the sin that's distorting the good creature he made. He loves you enough to want to disentangle you from the sin that is distorting and disordering you. But he doesn't hate you, and he doesn't need you to be anything other than this particular creature that he made. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So anyways, I, that's a different vision of life. Though. Yeah. I, I've got a buddy, uh, Brad Sarian. He's a pastor in California. And, and years ago, I think it was one of the first sermons he pre- I've heard him preach, he must have been like in his early 20s or something. Maybe, yeah. And he, he said that exact phrase, I'll never forget. This is probably... 10, at least 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago. And he said, God loves you. And everybody's like, yeah. And he's like, but he actually likes you. <laughs> you know? Oh yeah. The good. audience, yeah, I was yeah. like, they were like quiet. Like that seems lesser than, but why do I feel stunned by that? You know? <laughs> yeah. And I think it, it shows, we use the word love. Love just carries duty with it. Like, it of does. course your parents have to love you. They're, they're required. But like carries this idea of delight, pleasure you know, satisfaction. And so again, I, it's related to where we started. Do we have a doctrine of creation? We all say God created good, but do we actually believe that? Yeah. When we so quickly move to sin, do we still think that God likes his creation? I mean, I think, you know, when we think of creation, I feel like Genesis one comes easy at this kind of distant, Mm -hmm. powerful Elohim deity powerfully hurling creation into existence. But in 
Genesis 2, now we have Yahweh, you know, mm. uh, this personal God, that the image of him literally playing in the dirt and, and mm. getting yeah, his hands in the soil yeah, and yeah. forming Adam and, and, and coming face to face and breathing mm-hmm. life into Adam's nostrils. I mean, it's such an intimate, I, I just love those twin ideas of the, this, 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 you know, holy other, you know, God in Genesis yeah. one and transcendent and, and imminent. Yeah. Oh man. And, yeah. and, and, and it's, it's crazy. It was, I mean, it's, it's understandable that a lot of theologians mm. are like, ah, oh, these have to be two different authors, you know, like right, right, I get right, right, that right, because right. they seem so mm. different. And yet to know that those two ideas of transcendence and intimacy are, are both equally part of the heart of God is, is pretty profound. So, but I think I, for me, I read Genesis one. I'm like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Get that. You know, Genesis two, I'm like, wow. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> That's hard. And part of the connection there's, there's, you know, a chapter the title was going to be, and now it's just a subtitle, but it's praise God for Mary, you know, and I'm a Protestant, but yeah. we lose the significance of Mary. You have to connect Genesis one and John one. Mm. What is actually going on there is really beautiful. It is God. The incarnation is God's yes to his creation. He's like, no, no, no. I love this. I am committed to this and I will make it right. And it's not right. But that means the earthiness can't is not sinful, right? right. He can enter in, uh, in this. Anyways, that's yeah. that's a longer conversation, but it's it's super beautiful. And then you even get to Jesus and the significance of touch for Jesus is is huge and really important and healing. And what is that? So, yeah, we could keep yeah. going all kinds of directions, but. Well, I'll, I'll let you go, Kelly. Let me for the for the YouTube audience. Here is the book again. Uh, You're only human. I'm going to try to read it backwards here. Uh, How Your Limits <laughs> Reflects God's Design of Why That's Good News. Um, just came out just last year, 2022. Your endorsements, man, are from John Swinton to uh, Michael Horton, Beth Felker-Jones, Karen Swallow-Prior, David Tripp, uh, Scott Sauls, and many others. I mean, um, I'm excited to dig in. So, Kelly, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate your work. Thank you, friend. I appreciate it. Hey friends, have you been blessed or encouraged or challenged by Theology in the Raw? If so, would you consider joining Theology in the Raw's Patreon community? For as little as five bucks a month, you can gain access to a diverse group of Jesus followers who are committed to thinking deeply, loving widely, and having curious conversations with thoughtful people. We have several membership tiers where we where you can receive premium content. For instance, silver level supporters get to ask and vote on the questions for our monthly Patreon only podcast. They also get to see like written drafts of various projects and books I'm working on. And there's other perks for that tier. Gold level supporters get all of this and access to monthly Zoom chats where we basically blow the doors open on any topic they want to discuss. My patrons play a vital role in nurturing the mission of Theology in Raw. And for me, just personally, interacting with my Patreon supporters has become one of the hidden blessings in this podcast ministry. So you can check out all of the info at patreon.com forward slash Theology in Raw. That's patreon.com forward slash Theology in Raw.